Tonight we'll be looking particularly at three verses from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 to 11. But I'm going to read all the way from the beginning of Isaiah 39, all the way through to Isaiah 40, verse 11, to give us a sense of the immediate context. So please turn there in your Bibles. Isaiah 39, beginning at verse 1. At that time, Miradak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And then the text that we're focusing on this evening, resuming in verse 9, Go, up, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. 
He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Let's pray together. God, we ask your help as we come now to this beautiful, poignant passage of Scripture. Would you help us to understand what it means and how it applies to our lives? And Lord, would you help us not merely to acknowledge it intellectually, the way that we acknowledge, for example, the laws of physics or mathematical truths, but Lord, would you help us to embrace these truths, to rest our souls on these truths, to be comforted as you would intend for us to be by these truths. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We've been in Isaiah 40 for the past couple of weeks, exploring God's message of comfort to the ancient people of Judah, and by extension to us here and now in the 21st century. By way of review, Judah had been trusting in world superpowers, specifically Assyria, Egypt, and Babylon in that order, instead of trusting in the Lord for safety and security. In Isaiah 39, which we read just a minute ago, God had prophesied that Judah would go into captivity in Babylon, betrayed by the very nation that had signaled help and friendship to them by sending envoys to visit Hezekiah and bearing gifts. So the context of Isaiah 40 is comfort to a people exiled in Babylon. Though they hadn't been exiled yet at the time of Isaiah's writing, they would be. And Isaiah 40 would become comfort to them during the time of their exile. And in Isaiah 40, verses 9 to 11, which we're focusing in on tonight, God comforts those people in exile in Babylon by promising to come to them as a shepherd. And he will be a shepherd to them who is both fierce and gentle. Tonight we'll consider first the promise of God's coming in verse 9, and then the portrait of God as a fierce shepherd in verse 10, and finally the portrait of him as a gentle shepherd in verse 11. So let's begin then with the promise of God's coming. Look at verse 9. Zion, Jerusalem, is now to be the spokesman, the herald that Isaiah has been in the chapter thus far. Go on up on a high mountain, O Zion. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald, lift up your voice. This is reminiscent of the prophecy way back in Isaiah chapter 2, and verse 3, that one day out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God is going to win back the loyalty and the fidelity of his people. And when he does, they themselves will become his spokesmen. Don't miss this important motif in the biblical storyline. In both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Recipients of God's grace 
become heralds of God's grace. In Isaiah 2 and verse 3, we hear that the Jews redeemed from captivity in Babylon are going to proclaim the word of the Lord. Listen now also to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. You are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, recipients of God's grace become heralds of God's grace. This ought to spur us on in missions and in evangelism. With the exception of Jesus' instructions to various people during his earthly life, not to tell anyone about the miracles that they had experienced, so as not to bring on the premature uh, conflict with the religious leaders that would eventually lead to his death, so as not to bring that on prematurely before the appointed time. At times, yes, Jesus said, don't tell anyone about this. But with the exception of those unique circumstances, and that even being a temporary mandate, God has never saved anyone from anything with the goal that they keep salvation quiet, keeping it to themselves. God's goal is always that his mercy and grace are magnified in the proclamation of his mercy and grace to those who have yet to experience it. And God's purpose is that God's mercy and grace will be magnified as God's people celebrate the mercy and grace that we've experienced. Discussing it, rehearsing it, repeating it to one another amongst ourselves. God wants us to talk to one another as redeemed people about his mercy and grace. And God wants us to talk to others who have yet to experience his mercy and grace. So I repeat, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, recipients of God's grace become heralds of God's grace. And again, as I mentioned last week, God's heralds are not just to be loudmouths without anything meaningful to say. There is substance to the message that we are to proclaim. And what is the substance here in Isaiah chapter 40? which Jerusalem is to proclaim. Essentially this, God is coming. Behold your God at the end of verse 9. That is to be the primary message of Jerusalem, of Zion, that they are to go up onto a high mountain to proclaim, that they are to lift up their voice and herald. Behold your God. Since God is coming, those who had oppressed Judah should tremble. Judah herself, however, should rejoice and be comforted. Our God is here. As Isaiah 25 says, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. 
we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. God will come as a shepherd. Look at verse 11. That's where that image comes from. God will come as a shepherd to care for his people, the sheep of his pasture. So again, what is the substance of Jerusalem's message, Zion's message? What are they to go up on a high mountain and proclaim? What are they to lift up their voice and herald? God is coming to his people to save them as a shepherd. If you're joining us for the first time, and this is the first time you've ever been in church, I don't expect you to know the answer to this question. But if you know anything at all about biblical theology, I could ask you, when was this promise of God's coming as a shepherd to save his people fully and most ultimately fulfilled? And if you knew anything at all, if you know anything at all about biblical theology, you will tell me in the coming of Christ. We know that's the correct answer, not only from the rest of Scripture, but also from the immediate context of Isaiah chapter 40. Look back at verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. As John chapter 1 and verse 23 indicates, this was referring to John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness as a forerunner to Jesus. John said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Therefore, the one who came to Jerusalem on the heels of of John's message is the one coming in Isaiah 40 verse 9 on the heels of Isaiah 40 verse 3. Jesus. Here in Isaiah chapter 40 and verses 9 to 11 then, we have the promise of the coming Messiah. Then unfulfilled. But by our stage of redemptive history, already fulfilled. In the coming of Christ. For them, the Messiah is coming. For us, the Messiah has come. The message here is that God himself is coming to his people. But the way that we should understand Isaiah 40 verses 9 to 11 is that God has come to his people. Perhaps some who heard Isaiah in his day thought that the coming Messiah the servant of the Lord prophesied so often throughout the book of Isaiah. Perhaps some who heard Isaiah in his day thought that the coming Messiah and the coming God were two different persons and two different events. But we know clearly now from our vantage point in history that the coming of the Messiah and the coming of God were one and the same event. In the coming of Christ into the world, the divine shepherd comes to his people. The promised Messiah from God is God. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and contrary to the bogus translation of the Jehovah Witnesses, the Word was 
God. And in John 1.14, we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God himself has come as the rescuer of his people. That's the substance of Jerusalem's message. God himself will come, is coming as a divine shepherd to rescue his people. And we know from our vantage point in history that that happened in the coming of Christ Jesus. Before we move on, we should note that Isaiah writes of the coming of Christ in a manner typical of the Old Testament prophets. Like in many of the other prophecies of the Old Testament, events and actions pertaining to Christ's first coming and his second coming are intermingled in Isaiah 40. In other words, what compromises, pardon me, what comprises one paragraph or one chapter of Old Testament prophetic writing might unfold over a span of 2,000 plus years. One easy to understand example of this is when we see the promise of atonement for sins and the final defeat of the wicked together in Old Testament prophecy. When did atonement for sins occur? When Jesus died on the cross. And when will the wicked be fully and finally defeated? At Christ's second coming. At this point in history, we can safely say then that those events, the atonement for sins and the final destruction of the wicked, are separated by at least 2,000 years. But they're very often together in the prophets. I'm not sure who the first one to say it was, who to attribute the idea to, but reading the Old Testament has often been compared to standing on a mountain peak viewing the rest of the mountain range. From your perspective, all of the other mountain peaks are right beside each other, when in reality they're actually miles apart. So it is that atonement for sins and the final defeat of the wicked appear from the vantage point of the Old Testament prophets to be right beside each other since each is an aspect of the coming Messiah's work. But in reality, though likely unbeknownst to them, the Messiah's work would be spread out over at least 2,000 years. The importance of this concept for our purposes tonight is that though the reference to Christ's recompense or his punishment of the wicked are here alongside the rescue of his people, we should be clear that he will recompense the wicked at his second coming, at the end of all things. That he has not fully and finally recompensed the wicked as yet by means of his first coming, in which he lived, died, and rose for us and our salvation. So with all that in mind, let's return our minds now to the main theme of Jerusalem's message which is God is coming to his people to save them as a shepherd. And what more do we learn of this divine shepherd from Isaiah 40, verses 9 to 11? First, that the divine shepherd is fierce. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him, verse 10. 
his recompense is before him. Recompense sometimes means just paying someone back what you owe them. But in this case, and more typically in older language, recompense meant paying someone back in terms of vengeance, punishment. And that's the sense of it here in this verse. When the divine shepherd appears, he is going to bring recompense or revenge or pay out what is owed upon the enemies of his people. And he is well able to do it. He comes with might and his arm rules for him. The Lord Jesus Christ is not weak and effeminate as so many depictions of him throughout church history portray him to be. He is not the soft, limp-wristed sort of man that would give you the kind of handshake where it feels like his hand is about to fall out of yours if you don't hang on tight enough. As 1 Thessalonians tells us, one day the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And as 2 Thessalonians tells us, it will be to repay with affliction those who afflict you, Christian, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. Yes, it goes on to say, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, it will be to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Second Thessalonians Chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. When John's Gospel tells us that God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, it doesn't mean that Jesus will never condemn, never afflict, never avenge, never speak a cross word to his opponents. Rather, it meant that his first coming was to accomplish and to proclaim the salvation available to mankind while God exercises patience toward a world in rebellion against him. Christ's first coming was to publish terms of surrender prior to the impending invasion of Christ with his heavenly host on the last day in which his enemies will be defeated forevermore. And so Isaiah speaks about the fierceness of the coming shepherd. When he arrives to rescue his sheep, ultimately in the end, it will be bad news for the wolves, for the goats, for the unbelievers. We should not make the mistake of thinking Christ is only gentle, universally gentle especially his enemies, those who, as Thessalonians says, do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Especially his enemies should take heed of the depiction of the divine shepherd here in Isaiah 40. Jesus is indeed coming 
to gather the lambs in his arms. And more on that in a moment. But Jesus is also coming to recompense the wicked. The Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the unbelievers. The recompense of the wicked is a great comfort to the people of God. Like the family of a victim of injustice is comforted when justice is finally done. Like the hostage is comforted when his captor is shot by the SWAT team. So the people of God are comforted when our persecutors and those who mocked and scoffed are snuffed out and silenced, nevermore again to hurt or shame us. Yet the recompense of the wicked should be a great terror to those who will be on the receiving end. Does the one who formed the sun in the sky not know how to make a hell hot enough to make you regret your rebellion against him? Does the one who formed the vast mountain ranges of solid rock not know how to prepare a punishment weighty enough to absolutely crush you? The arrival of the U.S. Marines or Navy SEALs or a SWAT team or whatever is at one and the same time a comfort to some and a terror to others. And so it is with the coming of the divine shepherd of Isaiah 40. He will recompense his enemies and the enemies of his people. Therefore, as the psalmist says, kiss the son. Give him the kiss of deference. As in ancient times, someone used to bow before the king and kiss his hand or his ring. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way. Don't mess with Jesus. Yet the divine shepherd is coming also to rescue and to comfort his people. Let's consider now the wonderful truth that the divine shepherd is gentle. A shepherd he is. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, verse 11. And a gentle shepherd he is. As I have already alluded to, he will gather the lambs in his arms. Like a child being carried out of the jungle by a Rambo-like figure, God's people are carried to safety by Christ. He will carry them in his bosom, our text says. We need not have the ability to walk in order to be saved. He will do it all. As Jonathan Edwards said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Behold, your God comes doing all that needs to be done for you to be saved. He and he alone satisfied God's righteous demands of you 
by the substitutionary life of his son. He carries you. He and he alone, by the substitutionary death of his incarnate son, satisfied his own demand that recompense be paid out to you and on account of your sin. He carries you. He and he alone will raise you from your grave as he came out of his own grave so many years ago. Listen, you will not help him resurrect your dead body at all. Not one iota. You will not help him as you did not help him satisfy the demands of justice on your behalf. Neither will you help him resurrect yourself. He will do it all. He carries you. But sinner, you object. I am weak. And I am a heavy load to carry, weighed down with infirmities and sins. Don't forget that though he is gentle, he is strong. Don't forget what we just saw from verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His arm, which shall rule for him over his enemies, is strong enough to bear you up, notwithstanding the weight of all your infirmities and your sins. Whatever liabilities you bring to the table, none will render you unsavable by the divine shepherd. This is the thrust of the image at the end of verse 11. He will gently lead those that are with young. This doesn't mean that you're up the creek without a paddle if you have no children or aren't pregnant. It doesn't mean that you need to be with young to be led by the divine shepherd. Rather, this means that just as it would be more difficult to rescue from a hostage situation a woman eight and a half months pregnant than it would be to rescue a ninja, so it is more difficult to lead along a pregnant sheep than an able-bodied one carrying no young. Because the pregnant sheep is less able to cooperate with your rescue effort. The pregnant woman in a hostage situation is less able than a ninja to cooperate with your rescue effort. The point here is that even if you can't really cooperate with the divine shepherd, even if you can't really follow him too good, even if you don't really have ability in yourself to get up and make a run for it, nevertheless, he's going to get you out of there. He's going to save you. He's going to rescue you. Salvation is going to be the work of the divine shepherd, not the nimble, quick-footed sheep making a dash for it. When the divine shepherd comes, he will gather the lambs in his arms, carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those 
who are ill able to cooperate with him. He'll get it done. He'll take responsibility for leading you along. Struggling believer, Christ is well able to gently lead you to safety. Believer with lots of baggage, weighs down, heavy with child, as it were, Christ is well able to gently lead you to safety. Unbeliever with lots of baggage, Christ is well able to gently lead you also to safety. He is well able to carry you. Remember that between the first coming of Christ, where he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, between that coming and his second coming, where he comes to recompense the wicked, Remember that here and now, in between that first coming and that second coming, God is patient toward you. The divine shepherd is coming back to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But unbeliever, in the meantime, terms of surrender are published to you. There is a special forces unit on the way, so to speak, to eradicate all remaining opposition. But you may yet distance yourself from the enemy and give yourself up freely to Christ, trusting in the promise that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Remember I quoted earlier from Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 3. Out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Well, in the beginning of that verse, the once pagan nations say to themselves, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And the implication is that on that day, when the once pagan nations go up to Jerusalem, the God of Israel will receive them. There is yet time for you, unbeliever. There is yet time for you, unbeliever, to go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, in search of pardon and a new life, that you may learn his ways and walk in his paths. In summary, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus is the divine shepherd promised in Isaiah 40, who has come and is coming again. Both comings were prophesied here in Isaiah 40. One has already happened. The second is pending. 
This divine shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, is both fierce and gentle. Fierce towards his enemies and the enemies of his people. But gentle. Oh, so gentle to his own. Unbeliever, again, I implore you, be reconciled to this divine shepherd before he inflicts vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Put your faith in him. Trust in him. Ask him to save you. Have dealings with him even now, even tonight. Have dealings with this divine shepherd. Cry out to him that you don't want to receive recompense for your wickedness. But that you want to be numbered among the lambs, gathered into his arms, carried, led gently along. Cry out to him. As we sing from time to time, Jesus sinners does receive. As Pastor Chris preached even earlier today, God is glad, joyful to welcome sinners home. Christian, we are lambs in the divine shepherd's arms. He leads us. He carries us to safety. By his life, death, and resurrection, he has worked for us a great salvation that we never could have worked for ourselves. And none of our sins, infirmities, or liabilities are too heavy for his arms to bear. Rest there in those strong arms and be comforted. And proclaim, Christian, the grace that has saved you. Fellow believers, we are Jerusalem. We are Zion out of which shall go forth the word of the Lord. Therefore, trust in be comforted by and proclaim the truth that there is a divine shepherd, both fierce and gentle, who will recompense his enemies, but gather his lambs into his arms and carry his lambs in his bosom. Let's respond by praising that great shepherd. Behold our God.